This is not a military takeover. Stand by for action. Anything can happen in the next hour. It's Friday, it's 11 o'clock, and it's time for the Paranoid Squirrel Rock Show with your host, Armitage. Welcome to another episode of The Paranoid Squirrel Rock Show with Tommy Ray and beer, wine and whiskey, whiskey spelt with an E correctly, from his handful of hits album, Getting Proceedings This Week Underway. Before we start this evening's show off properly, I'm going to play The Godfathers' I Can't Sleep Tonight from their Jukebox Fury album because it's been going through my head for the last week, a constant, pleasurable Earworm. I'm not sure how the weather has behaving itself where you are, but for me, the nights have been hot and humid, making the song oh so apt. 
on the show because I think I'm a rubbish interviewer preferring to leave it to those who do a much better job of it than me so I can continue to play you the best in punk junk and glug however having said that though sometimes I think that there is an interesting musical story to be told and heard which is why I called up Steve Vincent lead singer with Paradise Alley who is currently in solo mode and of course hosts a very excellent Mystery City every other Tuesday on Scotland Rocks Radio. Now, both Steve and myself are of a similar age, moving very much in the same social circles over the last 30-plus years, attending the same gigs, clubs, but surprisingly enough, our paths have never crossed for us to be formally introduced. That was until Paradise Alley played two consecutive nights at the Dublin Castle in September 2019. Admittedly, we were friends on social media, trading comments as and when. Now, I pretty much get the measure of someone during our first conversation, which is why those in authority view me with suspicion, because generally I'm better informed than they are. I've got a degree in business management, not being big at or anything, but I've always found that I can tell if someone is a chancer or a bullshitter from the off, and me being me, I'll make it known that they are. One of my crowning moments was being asked by a director of a firm I'd just started working for if I knew what I was doing. I asked him if he read my CV, to which he replied, no. I told him that if he had, nowhere in it did it say that I was a cunt. Yeah, you'll be surprised to learn, but I wasn't, that he was let go a long time before me. On the other hand, if someone is genuine, they will have my friendship, and if they're a manager, my respect. 30 seconds into our virgin face-to-face conversation, I knew Steve, without knowing too much about him, apart from singing in Paradise Alley, 
was going to have both of those things. To be fair, the squirrel had been mates with him and his girlfriend for years and she doesn't suffer fools gladly. Obviously, I'm the exception to the rule. So I pretty much knew Steve was going to be one of those straight up guys and he is. Whilst listening to his radio shows, he'll sometimes regale an anecdote from his band days and earlier this year shared a Facebook long post to dispel some misconceptions whilst putting, to me, an unblemished record straight. So it seemed like he had a story, if not several, to tell. Coupled with Steve's upcoming solo album, Recovered From My Past, and Paradise Alley's probable only live appearance this year at Hard Rock Hell Sleaze over the August bank holiday, it seemed the ideal time to have him on the show. So I phoned him up Monday, just gone, for a chat. Welcome to the Paranoid School Rock Show, Steve. Thank you. It's my pleasure being here, mate. How does it feel, instead of being the interviewer on Mystery City Radio Show, you are now an interviewee? <laughs> it's, I'm slowly getting used to this again. I've, I think I've done one other since uh, in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's a little bit strange being on the other side. <laughs> well, I'll try and make it as painless as possible. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think our listeners have worked out that you are Scottish. What part are you originally from? So right in the centre, a um, place called Falkirk, I was born, right in between Glasgow and Edinburgh. So I sort of grew up with the scene in Glasgow and Edinburgh. I lived in Glasgow for a while as well before uh, heading south to London. Was there much music in your household when you were growing up? Oh, God, yeah. Um, I mean, everything. My parents were in the, the jazz and, and swing. Um, so I grew up with that music. And right from the start, I was... You know, I could listen to whatever. I mean, obviously back then, many moons ago, we had Top of the Pops. That was a Thursday night ritual from as long as I can remember. I asked Steve to pick some songs that influenced him that I could interject at the correct time during our conversation. And now seems like a good time as any. The first on his list is The Sweets, Fox on the Run. The greatest single ever released. I think it just sticks with me because, again, it was what I was saying earlier when I was growing up and you had the whole thing of Top of the Pops on a Thursday night. Um, And one of my earliest memories was seeing Sweet and yet was... uh, My first memories of stuff like um, Blockbuster um, and and songs like that. But Fox and the Run, I just thought... I always just think it's just the perfect single. And I, I, I just think it's such a great song. And ironically, when... Paradise Alley went through that period of being basically a glorified covers band. That was one of the songs we did cover, and it was one of the few that I did enjoy playing, <laughs> purely because it was that song. <laughs>
So yeah, music was always a big part of it. My grandparents were they loved music as well so there was lots of different types of music um, and I could just you know listen to whatever um, and it was never sort of you know it was only there's bad music and good music and that's it there's no genres um, and even though my parents didn't like what I listened to it wasn't you can't buy that you can't listen to that which was good Was there a particular moment when you suddenly thought this is what I need to be doing I need to be in a band? Um, I think the first time, as, as insane as it sounds, I was three and a half um, and it was Friday night so I used to get allowed to stay up late and my dad was flicking through the, the three channels, it was quite late on, um, and he hit on BBC Two and it was Old Grey Whistle Test and the New York Dolls came on doing Jet Boy and I was sitting on the, the living room floor playing with my toys and I just looked up and it was that was the first moment where I went, that's rock and you know rock and roll. There's something there, um, and that's stuck with me ever since. Fortunately, this leads nicely into Steve's second influential song. The song, the hand clapping, the image, the image of Thunders and Sylvain, um, everything about it. And I, obviously, being the, being the age that I was, I never imagined that I would get to see the dolls. Um, and then we saw them when they came back. Uh, the first time we saw them was up at Gla- in Glasgow at the, the old ABC, which is now burned down, sadly. Um, but yeah, we saw them, and that was when they burst in the jet by. That was that was a definite moment of epiphany. I, I, I shed a tear with that one, a tear of joy, I will say. And I'm not ashamed to admit that because that is just one of the that song for me is was the, the light bulb moment, really. Yeah, boys, 
Do anything musically while you're at school? Strangely enough, no. Um, music at school was always, I always say that music lessons and anything to do with music at school was just designed to make you hate music. I think school in general was there to make you hate everything. Yeah. <laughs> it just everything was there to encourage you to like it. So, I mean, I did learn classical guitar when I was at, at primary school, at junior school, um, and I wanted to continue that, but I never got the chance once I went to secondary school. So I just started doing stuff on my own then and teaching myself things, really. So what was your first band then? The first but I mean, there was lots of bands with no names, just rehearsing in friends' bedrooms with, you know, three guitarists and somebody hitting on pillows for drums. And, and the first one I can remember that had a name and we never got out of my friend's garage um, and that has got a con- connection with the dogs de That's actually, strangely enough, um, with a band called Southern Comfort. And we all, everybody in the band, I was playing keyboards at the time, strangely enough, and everybody was in the completely bizarre things. So, like, the bass player loved the Smiths. Um, I loved the stuff that I loved, like, you know, at that point, at that point it was stuff like The Cult, Hanoi, um, and all that type of stuff. The guitarist was in, in excess. I remember that. It was just the strangest thing. And the the, guitar, the, the garage that we were rehearsing in um, belonged to the parents of the girl, Gillian, who went on to be the PR rep for the dogs when they were signed the uh, China Records, which I always, I always found really bizarre. I never imagined she would end up doing that, but yeah. <laughs> 
As we're talking about the dogs more, I think it's time for another of Steve's influential songs. I first heard the dogs when they were on Trash and Delivery with the song Teenage. Um, and it just kind of went over me. It didn't really stick with me. Um, and then I remember hearing um, How Come It Never Rains. I think it was it was either on a TV show, the video was played on a bit of the video, or it was on the radio, I heard a bit of it just before it came out. And I just think, God, what a great song. And I remember the, the, the go in the day it came out down to the local record shop and buying the gatefold sleeve, pink, pink purple sleeve. Um, and it's just been one of those songs that stuck with me. And I, when I was when I did the special last year on Mystery City with the, the guys, um, I, I said at the time, to Bam, you know that that was a again another pivotal moment for me. And I always sort of thought of the dogs as you know, to me they were always in with bands like Lodge of the New Church, Hanoi, that the dolls. It was really it wasn't a. It wasn't an LA thing where it's like, well, this is just to get us a deal. They they were living it. It was everything was about it was authentic, and that song was just such a great song.
So what was the first band that you actually did a gig with? So the first one I did proper gigs with, um, it took ages to get to it, was Indian Angel, um, and we were from Glasgow. Um, but it was just, it was, I was looking for a band in the sort of, you know, that the Hanoi sort of vibe, New York Dolls, Guns N' Roses, that type of thing. And I went along for an audition. They didn't have a name at the time. And yeah, we, we just, the four of us got together and it took off from there. And um, I literally, uh, that was the band that I blooded myself on as managing as well as singing. Um, Blimey. So I just was like, hit Kerrang, guide, take loads of venue numbers, started phoning up, pretending I was a manager and just, you know, blagging gigs and asking for, you know, money and sending off promo packs and it just went from there and we did really well. We got in a few end of year polls in Kerrang. We were always in Kerrang. Um, bizarrely enough, they didn't always like us, but we got a lot of coverage. And uh, yeah, that that was the first one. And we gigged really hard for about eighteen months. We were constantly gigging and recording. And then um, I packed it in and moved to London. Did any of those recordings ever see the light of day? Oh, uh, they came out as demo tapes, and they, they, we do have, I think, practically everything in MPC format hidden away in a vault now. <laughs> so just for prosperity, something to look back on. It's definitely there for posterity. I mean, occasionally I've, I've listened to them and it's, it, there's nothing bad, you know, that's the, quite naive really and I'm not, just not ashamed of them but compared to other stuff you think, yeah, you could tell that that was their first real sort of serious attempt at anything. If all things with Indian Angel were going reasonably well, why jack it in and move to London? Um, I'd, I'd been spending a lot of time there and had been on and off for several years anyway if I wasn't doing anything if we were having downtime with the band I had quite a few friends so I would just literally get the coach and spend sort of long weekends and stuff down in London and hang about on the scene um, and was getting to know more people and I was drifting away from the guys that were in Indian Angel they wanted to go in a different musical direction they were also getting into the second Skid Row album which ages that that you know, puts you in that sort of 1990 era. And I was very resolute that I knew I liked playing glam punk. I like lots of different types of stuff. But when it comes to what I'm good at and what I like playing, the music I like playing is glam punk and I wanted to stick to my roots. So, uh, yeah, I just kind of kept spending more time down there and eventually it was like, you know, we were we were sitting in a tour van and they would, they would be at one side of the van and I'd be at the other note talking. And it, it was quite a lonely existence when you're on the road for three months at a time. And I just thought, yeah, um, it's you know, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be cool. And it's like, yeah, this is this is not fun anymore. So it's time to go. So yeah, I just basically sold a, a lot, tons of stuff. Sold a lot of my record collection, which was a, a big. What the fuck am I doing, moment? Um, but yeah, I, I just went for it and, and made the move really. Once in London, how quickly did you get into a band? Um, I, I I was briefly, I replaced Paul Blitz, ex-Soho Roses. I replaced him and his band, uh, the band Scarlet Tears, very briefly. Um, and that was just, you know, I, I knew, I think, pretty much from the get-go that was never going to be permanent. Musically, it was what I wanted to do, but it was the guitarist wrote the songs, um, you had no input, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a you'll do as I say and it wasn't a particularly great move it, it got me down and we played one show at the Oxford Dolly um, 
which I had booked, funnily enough. And then uh, by that point, anyway, I'd started advertising, looking for musicians that I wanted to put together to make Paradise Alley. From what I can gather, once you had Paradise Alley up and running, certainly in the early days, you seemed to have rather a lot of band members passing through your ranks. I think it was just the usual thing, and there was more people in the scene then, so if somebody left, you know, it was easier to get somebody. Um, and it was just the usual thing of people coming in and then deciding once they were in that they wanted to take it in a completely different direction. Um, and, of course, at that point, we were sort of on the cusp. Grunge was coming in, industrial music was really starting to, you know, lift up. So people were going off on all sorts of tangents and wanting to take the band in that direction. And it was kind of like, we're not doing that. You know, if you wanted to form a band like that, go form a band like that. Paradise Alley is a rock and roll band. You know, our roots are in Gene Vincent and Little Richard through the Dolls, the Ramones and the Hanoi. You know, that that's the heritage we're coming from, the Stones, all of that. If you suddenly want to jump on the Ministry bandwagon or the Nirvana bandwagon, find somebody else to do it with because this is not the band for it. So that that was a lot of it. Um, and, and sometimes it was just people just, would, you know, everybody's different, you don't get on. So it's like, yeah, I think it's best if you go that way and we'll go this way. If you were in a glam punk band in the early 90s, it was certainly a difficult time because it seemed to echo what happened when punk first started. Suddenly all those albums you hadn't enjoyed listening to were deemed irrelevant. How difficult was it for you starting out at the wrong time? Um, I mean, it, it was a strange thing in this, this respect to stand and watch a lot of people jump ship. You know, yeah, you know, with that saying the ship ironically, yeah, you'd sort of go down on a Friday night to the ship in Soho or the George or the Fox. And it was like on one night you were there and everybody looked like you. And then you went down the following night on the Saturday and suddenly everybody had totally changed their image and was trying to be grunge or like I say, trying to be industrial. And it was like, what the fuck happened? I saw you last night. That was 24 hours ago. Um, so, yeah, I suppose in some ways you could say it was difficult. It started to become more difficult to find like-minded musicians. But um, at the same time, it was for me, it was I'm resolute in this. This is what I do. I'm not going to, you know, just go for the latest fashion. And now I think it's about time for Steve's next influential song from a band that I would be worried if they didn't feature in and indeed on his list, Hanoi Rocks. The first bass line I ever learned as a bass player was motivating. <laughs> Seriously inspired the Sammy Yaffa. Um, but yeah, um, the the Oriental Beat album was the first of their albums that I got. I mean, I remember... Actually, I first got it from the local library and taped it till I could afford to save up and buy the album with my pocket money. Um, but I just, everything about that song, again, just encapsulates, um, for me, Oriental Beat and Back to Mystery City are the two albums that just defined that band. And alongside the Dolls, they were, you know, one of my pivotal bands and I used to get lambasted for that by certain members of Paradise Alley many years ago Um, and I think oh why there's nothing to be ashamed of it's you know a great band
Paradise Alley's debut album, Psychotic Playground, came out in 1993 on your own label. Was that due to the lack of record label disinterest because you weren't flavour of the month? I mean, we would get the, the the ironic thing was we were getting the interest, um, and there was a couple of labels would come down to the shows all the time, and we were watching us. And I remember having a lot of phone conversations with guys um, from the KMI and stuff. Um, but it felt very much like it was everybody was sitting to wait and see if some if a band could sort of sustain the type of stuff playing, you know, glunk, glam punk, whatever you want to call it if a band could sustain it in this tidal wave that was coming, you know, bands going off on a different thing. Um, and we sort of, I definitely took took a, a bit of inspiration from the Kill City Dragons, who'd obviously come through sort of a year, two years earlier, and they'd went down the route and released the 12-inch vinyl EP, and the Little Meat Cake EP. So originally that, was, that had been our game plan between myself and Johnny, the first league guitarist, that then and we were both quite you know quite a, a tight-knit team at that point and we were like okay this is a good blueprint to follow let's just keep the interest there but we'll do a release on our own label and see what that generates you know and hopefully something will come from that so that was kind of the game plan with it i bought psychotic playground when it first came out from croyne's premier rock and metal record shop rocket it certainly was a rock and roll album with hints of the stones on leave me alone that quite easily could have been an outtake from either Black and Blue or Some Girls, with even an ACZC vibe going on with Walking the Baby in the guitar department. However, my favourite song from said album is this one, Shot Down.
hard was it for you to get gigs? Because I remember at the time, a lot of venues weren't interested mm. in putting on bands of your ilk. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it was just definitely the training I got when I was an Indian angel. It was like I was, even though I'm quite away from all of this, I'm very quiet. I'm 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 good at that. I'm very pushy, and if I want want something, I'm I'm good at pushing for it and getting it. So, I think we were pretty good for for shows, and we we toured the UK quite a bit, um, right up until. You know, even after well, with that lineup and touring that album right up into the summer of '94, we were we were doing pretty well and played the marquee regularly, headlined a few shows there, and we were next day we were quite happy to get in a, a van and go up and down the UK, go up and down the M1 and do it the old-fashioned way. Between Psychotic Playground and its follow-up, Home Wreckers and Heartbreakers, there was a four-year gap. Was that down to the uh, musical climate still showing disinterest? Um, it was partly the, the lineup that we had self-imploded <laughs> um, on stage at the Marquee um, in true rock and roll spinal tap fashion. Um, basically, everybody was ready to quit. Um, I think there was just too many other things going on and, you know, like other influences, shall we say. <laughs> You'll say no more. <laughs> um, so we were all in close proximity all the time. Um, and actually, the the last show that one at the Marquee the night before, it, the, the bass player got arrested because he um, had a domestic dispute with his then wife um, and ended up locked locked in his bathroom, phoning us at our house uh, while the police were trying to kick down his door <laughs> to get him. Um, so that was kind of yeah, this this isn't looking good. And then, like I say, the next night we played with a session bass player. And basically the guitarist was like, I'm out of here, I've had enough of this shit. Um, and then um, Damien Cullen, who was on drums then, uh, Spider, he, he followed pretty much within 24, 48 hours of that because he wanted to go off and do his own thing. Um, so yeah, there was a little bit of a break as I put a new line up together. Um, and then it was just a case of... Uh, things that happened, sort of business stuff behind the scene. We got offered a, a bit of a development deal um, with the producer of the album, the second album, because originally we were just going to go in and sort of two weeks record and mix it and get it out there. Um, and he had contacts in the industry, so he was like, well, you know, I'll give you as much more time, as much time as you want in the studio in return for I'll, I'll represent you guys and I'll push you the, all the labels. Home Records and Heartbreakers, it, it ended up on a US label. How did that come about? Yeah, because basically what happened was we finished the album um, and the rest of the guys, um, much like Rendon Angel, it was becoming, they were in one little camp, I was in another. They were quite happy playing cover versions in the local bars. By that point, we'd just moved outside of London, so we were based down in Berkshire. Um, and we were literally playing the local biker bar every weekend, just playing covers. And we'd play a couple of originals. And we were still doing it under Paradise Alley. And I hated every minute of it. And the album was stagnating. And it was a good couple of years, about a year and a half, I think, between finishing it and actually getting the deal. Um, and I eventually thought, I've had enough of this. You know, we're, we're not going anywhere. We'd had one, one response from a record label in all that time the album you know and it was like well we're going nowhere this is you know th this isn't what the point of being in a band is 
So uh, I basically just took the masters and started looking for a deal. And then we got the deal with with Delinquent Records over in Alabama. That album is like super impossible to find. I mean, it is out there. Uh, Discogs don't have any with a, a couple on eBay going for like 40 or 50 quid. And they're all in the States. So, you know, expect to pay the same again in postage and taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if there was ever an album, even in a limited form that should be reissued, it's Home Wreckers and Heartbreakers. There are a couple of tracks from it on your compilation album, the rest are the best. But why not just a straight reissue? Well, we would love to. Um, but those two songs were actually originally done by Indian Angel, so they were written by me and the guitarist. One was written by me and the guitarist from Indian Angel, and the other one was written by me, the guitarist, and the bass player. Um, and we re-recorded them for that second album. The rest of the stuff was written by me and the guys who were in the band at that point. Um, and once we got the deal, they all said they were leaving. They didn't like me, they didn't like the music, they didn't like the direction we're going in and they didn't want to go off and do a a tour of the US. So it was like, okay, fair enough. Um, And they knowingly then let me, they were quite happy to just go off. I got a new lineup in and we actually went off and toured the States, played CBGBs, went down through the Midwest and everything. Um, and they were fine then. When we got back together a few years ago, the original plan was to re-release both albums as special editions. Um, and they then got in touch and said, well, no, we're using our veto as, as co-songwriters, so you can't re-release it. You're not you're not living off our immense talent and our, um, make, making a living off of us. And it was like, well... You know, but I'm in the ground band. We don't sell that many records. We're not, I'm not living in a mansion because of this. <laughs> so, yeah, so they just didn't want it out. They just didn't think that the fans deserved to, to hear it anymore. So, sadly, it is, uh, it is not available and it will never be re-released. So, if anyone sees them in their local charity shop or a boot fair going for a couple of quid, buy them. Get them. Get them, yeah. And <laughs> you, you could sell them and then, you know, retire on them. <laughs> From Heartbreakers and Homewreckers, this is Don't Say Nothing. Don't play this wrong, 
interview with Steve is going to continue on to next week's show but I've still got time to play one more of his influential songs that I was surprised at because it was The Damned surprised that well um, <laughs> when I was growing up my um, as a kid my best friend was a year older than me um, and he was just you know voracious about music um, and his parents were very similar, just, you know, whatever he wanted to listen to, that was fine. They didn't have to like it, they let him, you know, and he was in these punk and he loved The Damned, The Clash, um, GBH, Exploited, he loved everything. Um, and I just remember always, we'd go around his house and I just remember sitting listening to all the records, but The Damned, the two bands that stuck me from that were The Damned and Gen X, but The Damned, New Rose, I just think it's, it's just the perfect punk rock. So I know it's classed as the first um, first punk single, you know, back in 76. But I, I do think, yeah, there's just something about it that's, again, it's that perfect single, isn't it? And that perfect song, it sums everything up. So, yeah, I'm a, I love it. And I've seen The Damned so many times over the years. Always, always a great live band. Is she really going out with him? Yes. 
just kind of strange like a stormy sea I don't know why, I don't know why I guess these things have gotta be I've got a new rose, I've got a good Yes, I knew that I always would I can't stop to mess around I got a brand new rose in town See the sun, see the sun it shines Don't get too close, so it'll burn your eyes Don't you run away that way You can come back another day I've got a new rose, I've got a good Yes, I knew that I always would I can't stop to mess around I got a brand new rose in town I never thought this could happen to me Oh, this is strange Oh, why should it be? I don't deserve somebody this great If you want to check out Steve and Paradise Alley for merch and CDs, you can visit him on Facebook. For Paradise Alley, it's Paradise Alley UK. And for Solo Steve, it's Steve Vincent Official. Until next week and part two of my interview with Steve Vincent, take it easy. This episode of the Paranoid Squirrel Rock Show was produced by Bart and Stacey, engineered by Fenny Bridges and was hosted by Armitage Schmidt and was a Watts' Lodge production. Metal Mirtha Something arranged with vinyl Guitars T-shirts, sweatshirts And so much more Situated in the indoor market Mirtha Tidville, Wales CF 47 8EM Open Tuesdays to Saturdays 9 till 5 
remember heavy metal murder.